morning. Happy Veterans Day. So I am not from a military family, so I apologize. I don't have any cool uh, veteran stories, but I was talking to my five-year-old a couple of weeks back. I have five kids, and I was talking to my fourth uh, child. His name is Hudson, five years old, and we're talking a little bit about the Garden of Eden. And I'm reading him the story, kind of talking about taking a bite of the fruit and um, telling him about the snake that came in and tempted Eve and how Eve then ate of the fruit and turned to Adam. And I looked at my son, Hudson, and I said, Hudson, what would you have done if you would have been on the garden, in the garden there with them, and that snake came in? What would you have done? Would you have eaten of that fruit? Hudson thought about it for a moment. He said, Dad, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have killed that snake. <laughs> so maybe he has a place in the military. Maybe. In the future, he's going to put that snake to death. So I praise God for sometimes just out of the mouth of babes, we're reminded of the doctrine of mortification of sin. Amen? So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And this morning, I want to share with you from just a very familiar passage of Scripture about how Jesus turned the water into wine. And so it's truly an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. I know this is a familiar text for many of you, but I hope to point out a couple of new things that will help you and encourage you and just challenge you. And so I've titled the message, Saving the Best for Last. Saving the Best for Last. John chapter 2, let me read the text and we'll jump right in, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And, this, and, the, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reading of the word. Thank you for the reminder that you are sovereign over us. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who have given their time to serve our country. Thank you for the testimony even of Dr. Duncan, to his boy who flies in the Air Force. God, we're just thankful for this country that we live in. We've been all kind We've been through all kinds of things here this last week, high highs and maybe low lows. Our country is divided. We thank you that as Christians, we're united in Christ. Lord, we're not looking for a great world leader. We have one. His name is Jesus. And we bow before the throne today and we worship our exalted king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we desire to honor him today 
as we learn a little bit more about his ministry and about how you're saving for us the best for last. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since George Washington took the Oval Office, the presidential oath of office in an inaugural address has been one of America's favorite and most treasured political rituals. And back in 1789, uh, this is what George Washington said in his inaugural address. He said, quote, It would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aid can supply every human defect. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. It was many years later that the 16th president, uh, President Abraham Lincoln in 1865, in his second inaugural address, gave this famous um, speech, quote, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all that we might achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. It was a century later that President Franklin D. Roosevelt, on the beginning of World War II, said this in 1941, quote, In the face of great perils never before encountered, our strong purpose is to protect and perpetuate the integrity of democracy. For this we muster the spirit of America and the faith of America. We do not retreat. We are not content to stand still. As Americans, we go forward in the service of our country and by the will of God. Twenty years later, President John F. Kennedy gave this famous speech at his inaugural address, quote, Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, in order to assure the survival and success of liberty. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what, you can, what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, as famous and in, as inspiring as these inaugural addresses can be, especially if you love American history, they tend to lift our spirits, the spirits of fellow Americans who hoped for a new day. But as inspiring as that is, none of that holds a candle to the inauguration of the ministry 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Human presidents, as good as they try to be, bring flaws and failures and never accomplish all they set out to do. But in opposition to this, Jesus Christ, as perfect as he is, brings perfection and completion to all that he sets out to do. And in the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, he did not give a great speech. He rather performed a great miracle. And that wasn't about talk, but it was about action. It wasn't just about turning water into wine. It was about the dawning of a new day as the kingdom of God had now arrived with a powerful and undeniable miracle, Jesus turning the water into wine. This is what the Jews had longed for. This is what the prophets had written about. This was saving the best for last. Genesis chapter 3 talks about how there is one to come who will crush the head of Satan. 2 Samuel 7 talks about a king whose kingdom will know no end. Isaiah 9 verse 6 talks about for how unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I don't know what kind of year you've had in 2016, and I don't know what kind of future you're stepping into, I don't know how you're doing today and your relationships with other people. I don't know how things are going for you right now at the Master's University. I don't know what's going on in your financial situation. I don't know if your health is holding up. I don't know if you're in a good place right now with your roommates. But I do know that God is saving the best for last for you. And he's doing that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer today for America. Jesus is the answer today for you. Jesus is the answer today for your struggle and whatever relationship you're in. He's the answer to all your fears and all your anger, to your depression, your anxiety, to your hurt. Jesus is our hope. And so I simply want to invite you to come to this wedding with me today. And let's take a a look at a familiar passage. Let's taste the good wine that Jesus has kept for now. This morning, as we learn about the wedding of Cana, I just want to simply give you five headings as we examine this account together so that you can see that the best is yet to come. First thing I want to point out to you is just simply the people that are present at this wedding, the people that are present here at the wedding. We read in verse 1 and 2, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so we see here that in John chapter 2, it's on the third day that this story picks up, probably on the third day of Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel in the previous passage to be his disciples. And so it's on the third day of him kind of starting to get going and building some momentum for his ministry. He's there located in the setting of Cana in Galilee. It's a small town about nine miles north of Nazareth. It's where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, Cana not being far from there. I've actually been to Cana uh, maybe you've been there if you've done IBEX or if you're heading there next uh, trip, uh, maybe make sure they take you to Kena. They, we, we believe where we know where Kena is, and so it's just kind of cool to, to be in the city and say, man, I'm, I've been to Kena, right? Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's an amazing story that we learn about here, right? And like today, weddings were a major um, part of that first century society, 
But unlike today, a wedding celebration would often last up a week, up to a week, and most of the time uh, taking place prior to the wedding. So it'd be like a celebration for a week long. In fact, uh, even on the night of the ceremony, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house. They would escort her and her attendants to the groom's house where the ceremony and the banquet would be held. And the whole celebration would end with the actual wedding ceremony. Let me give you a, a list of the people who we know attended this wedding. There was a bride and there was a bridegroom. We don't know who they are. They're not mentioned in the text, but he's at a wedding, so I bet you there was a bride and a bridegroom there, right? There was family and friends there. There was the people of Cana. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Jesus at the wedding, and there were the disciples. And by attending a wedding and performing his first miracle there, Jesus sanctified both the institution of marriage and the ceremony itself. In fact, let me just pause there for a moment and give you a quick biblical reminder of marriage because I think that's one of the things you could deduce from this text is simply this, marriage was instituted by God. It's not a human construct. It's not about two people today in the modern age of the same sex joining together and claiming if they have monogamy that somehow that equals marriage. I'm sorry. God is the one who gives us and ordains and sets marriage up. It's the sacred union of a man and a woman, whereby they become one in the sight of God. In fact, God performed the first wedding between Adam and Eve, and in Genesis 2, 24, as you know, it states that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage was designed to be lifelong. We often read statistics that half of marriages end in divorce. We have a biblical counseling center at our church. I wish I could tell you that all the people that we counsel uh, reconcile their conflicts, but they don't. I'm in the midst of a difficult situation right now that's headed straight to divorce. It's a sad thing, but we need to be reminded this morning that it's not about staying in the marriage as long as it feels good, that you're committed to this thing for the rest of your life, and it's only by the grace of God that you could honor God in your marriage. We should be reminded this morning that God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. If somebody in your family's divorced, that doesn't mean we hate them. Or somehow they should wear a scarlet letter all their life. I'm just saying that you, as you think about life moving out into the world, you, we need to be reminded of a God-shaped view of marriage lest we get so wrapped up into the culture that we began to get a little too casual about this precious ceremony and institution that God ordained. Uh, wedding ceremonies are a time of celebration. We see that here in John 2. Um, I would say Jesus should be invited to your marriage. Um, right now, I have two couples in our ministry who are getting married, so I'm doing their premarital counseling, and we're going through a lot of effort to get ready for that perfect day, the wedding ceremony, where the girl is like, ah, I just want everything to be perfect. I mean, my dress is going to be perfect, the music's going to be perfect, the ceremony's going to be perfect, and so when I kind of get that sense from the bride-to-be, oftentimes I just say, hey, time out. I, I don't mean to, like, crash your party, but this wedding's not about you. <laughs> This wedding's about magnifying the gospel. This wedding's an opportunity for you and your groom. Wake up, wake up, guy, wake up. You and your groom, like the guy's like, you know, to realize that this is a picture of the gospel. Christ is coming back for the bride. So again, I want the day to be special, but sometimes it's just a reminder. It's really not even about the ceremony. 
It's about the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years that you guys live together. And the reason I'm meeting with you in premarital counseling isn't to get you ready for the ceremony. It's to get you ready for a lifetime together so that you can magnify Christ. I would just say you need to invite Jesus to your wedding. Not only do you need to invite Jesus to your wedding, you need to invite him to your marriage. He needs to be a regular part of all that you are on a daily basis as you seek to honor Christ together. Well, now that we've seen the people present at the wedding, let's look at our second heading, which is just simply this. Number two, the problem exposed at the wedding. Obviously, we know what the problem is. The wine ran out. Look again at verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this was a problem indeed, and definitely bad news. This would have been embarrassing for the groom and his family, and some historical traditions tell us that the groom could actually be sued by the bride's family if the wine ran out. Pretty interesting, and we know for a fact that those Jews loved their booze. And if they didn't get it, you could be sued, right? So Mary, the mother of Jesus, picks up on this and immediately brought this to Jesus' attention. Maybe she figured it was time for him to go public. I mean, the angel Gabriel did appear to her so many years ago and said, you're going to have a son who's going to change the world. And maybe Mary was thinking, well, this is as good a time of any. Jesus, won't you start doing that thing you're supposed to be doing? I, mean, I don't know what she was thinking, but maybe she thought that. Maybe she just wanted him to do something about it. So maybe we could say, at least to her credit, she did bring the problem before the Lord. She brought the problem to the Lord Jesus Christ and just presented it to him. I think there's something we could learn from that. Where do you take your problems? Who do you talk to when you're down and out? When you run out of whatever it is that you feel like you need in your life, where do you go? Where, where do you present yourself? Mary brings her problem to Jesus. And look at the, the conversation between Mary and Jesus in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now in our vernacular, in the English, this seems to be a little rude, doesn't it? A little borderline disrespectful. I mean, what if your mom came to you and said, Hey, we're out of milk. Woman. <laughs> What's that got to do with me? That's not the attitude by which Jesus spoke to his mom. Let me assure you that Jesus never disrespected his mother. Jesus was never frustrated by his mom. I believe that he's simply redirecting her thinking and our thinking today to help us see that Jesus is filling the mission of his heavenly father not the request of his earthly mother. And while Jesus submitted to and obeyed his parents while here on earth, they needed to understand that they had no business directing the Son of God. And neither do we. We are not to direct the Son of God. We are to be directed by the Son of God. And so maybe we could pause and ask, are there areas in your life where you've tried to direct God according to your desires and your timing about what needs to be happening in your life. Maybe you've come to Jesus and said, hey, I have no more money. Jesus, what are you going to do about it, right? Jesus, I, I don't have a girlfriend. In fact, the girls at the university run from me. Right? Maybe you're here and you're like, I, I haven't been asked out on a date in months, Jesus. Right? Jesus, I don't have a job. 
I don't have a car. In one sense, we want to come to him with a humble request, right? But in another sense, we don't want to infer, therefore, you need to do what I'm asking you to do. Make sure that you're reminded that he does all things well in his time. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so Jesus tells Mary simply, my hour has not yet come. Now, several times in the Gospel of John, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then finally, his hour does come at the crucifixion, where Jesus says in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so his hour has not yet come fully. This is just the inauguration of his public ministry, his first miracle, and it's important, but it's not the culmination of all that Jesus came to do when we read in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, when he says, my hour is not yet come, he's mainly talking here about the cross, the crucifixion, accomplishing redemption, the atonement that's needed and required for any human being to be born again. But I still appreciate Mary in this conversation. She's not the matriarch of our faith. She's not the blessed redeemer. She's not a co-redemptist. She's not to be prayed to. But I still appreciate the fact in verse 5, notice what she does. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's a good mama. Right? That's a good Christian. That's a good attitude to have. Right? Mary shows great wisdom and great humility. She could have fought against Jesus, but instead she submitted to Jesus and she simply gave a directive to the others that were standing there that would be true for all of us today. Do whatever he tells you. Could it be any more clear? As a follower of Jesus, we're called to do whatever he tells us to do. And he tells us, obviously, through his word and in principle, and through the wisdom of Scripture, it's not going to speak to you in an audible voice. And yet we still have to learn to trust Him and to grow in our understanding of the Word of God and how that fleshes out in our life. You know, before I was a pastor, I was a, I was a physician's assistant. I grew up in the South, and I, I worked in Savannah, Georgia, in open-heart surgery for four years. And as I was working in surgery, I'll never forget some of the first days I'm working in open-heart surgery, the surgeon took his hands and he placed them on my hands, and he said, Adam, I want you to feel of this heart. And I want you to feel the tissue here that surrounds this chest cavity. And I want you to make sure you, you can tell the difference between a venous blood vessel and an arterial blood vessel. And I need to make sure that when I say cut here, you cut here. And when I say tie this, I want you to tie this. And you better do exactly what I say. I, to that, I just responded, yes, sir. I wasn't about to say, hey, man, I'm actually going to do something different. Watch this. You want, you want me to cut this one? I'm going to cut this one. <laughs> I mean, you don't do that, right? Or you're out of a job, right? So the idea is you want to do whatever your boss tells you. And I was thankful that I had a boss who was patient in teaching me how to do heart surgery so that I could follow and learn from his skill and his trade. And there were a couple of times I did some wrong things in there, but that's another story for another time, all right? But the idea is that we want to do what our Savior tells us, right? Maybe we should ask the question, are you following the chief surgeon, the great physician of the soul? Are you obeying his every command? 
Are you following him today? Are you willing to follow this directive from Mary? Just do whatever he tells you. Are you allowing your hands to be guided by his? What is it in your life that you need to let go of? What is it in your life that you need Jesus to take control of? Come to him this morning seeking his wisdom and his directive. Don't be directed by Jesus. Or don't direct Jesus. Be directed by him, right? Let's look on to number three, the plan executed at the wedding. Verse 6 here, we, we see a little bit of a Jewish custom. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites for purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. The Jews practiced ceremonial washings and observed strict traditions. We read uh, many times in the New Testament how they wouldn't eat unless they had washed their hands properly. Mark chapter 7 talks about how they would uh, do the washing of the cups and the pots and the copper vessels and, and, and the dining uh, 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 utensils that they would use. There, there, there was a lot of ceremony that was there. And so these stone pots would hold the water for ritual purification. They were stone instead of earthen because earthen pots could become unclean. And these large pots, again, holding 20 to 30 gallons of water each. And so we read in verses 7 and 8, the command from Christ, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus wanted them to fill the water pots with water, and they did it all the way to the brim. Always love that, right? Obeying to the fullest, not a half-hearted obedience. It seems like an insignificant detail, but they, they want to obey him fully, preventing any room for anything else to be added. Complete obedience, not I, if I feel like it, obedience, not half-hearted obedience, but complete obedience to every word of our Lord. And then indeed we read about the miracle of transformation, right? A look at the generosity and grace of our Lord who provided this wedding host with now about 150 gallons of wine, an ample supply that would last many days for sure. And Jesus then commands them to draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Now think about that for a moment. These water pots were used for purification. It could be said that maybe they were, the water was already used and maybe uh, had been uh, defiled, um, you know, it wasn't like they had, you know, arrowhead water purifiers. So they might have had some natural spring water from the Gion Spring and other things. But the idea is maybe this water had already been contaminated. And Jesus says, look, scoop out some water, take it to the head waiter. Now that's kind of like beyond the normal way that you would operate at a wedding like this, right? What if, what if the water's nasty? What if the head waiter spits it out? What if we're embarrassed about what happens? How embarrassing this could be if Jesus didn't come through. But why doubt Jesus? Has he ever not come through? Has he ever not been there for you? Has he ever come up short? Has he ever deceived you? Has he ever asked you to do anything that would be shameful or inappropriate? And hopefully by this point, you're starting to see the greater purpose, I believe, of the story the old ways under the old covenant have reached their expiration in Christ and in his ministry. What had been used by the Jews as a symbol of purification, whether it be the ceremonial washing at a feast or an animal sacrifice or an emphasis on an outward obedient life, does nothing to change the heart. Jesus is going to transform an old ritual through a new miracle as he gives a new supply of mercy and grace at the cross. 
This leads us to our fourth heading. As you keep that in mind, we'll, we've got to finish up here. Verses 9 and 10, I want to talk about the praise rendered at the wedding. Verse 9 and 10, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now they come wine and did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The waiter tasted the wine immediately. He knew something was different. He had no idea where this wine had come from. He just knew it was different, vastly different. Have you ever met somebody at work or at a dinner party who kind of realized that you were different? You didn't talk like they talked. You didn't hang out in the places where they hung out. You didn't join in with worldly pleasures like they would participate in. And has anybody ever noticed that you're vastly different and they begin to ask you, why do you do what you do? Why are you always filled with joy? Why do you seem to always do the right thing? And would you be tempted to say, well, I'm a good boy and you're a bad boy? <laughs> or would you say, you know what, let me tell you why I'm different. I'm actually a sinner just like you. I've actually been defiled by my own sin. I was born that way. But somewhere along the way, Jesus did a miracle in my heart. Somewhere along the way, he changed the water into wine. Somewhere along the way, he regenerated my soul. The head waiter explains how usually people don't serve the good wine towards the end of the feast, but at the beginning and after people have drunk freely, literally, that means they had their senses dulled, they've even become drunk. That's when people pull out the cheap wine. But not at this wedding. The waiter notes that they've saved the best for last. One commentator writes, quote, Surely it was the sweetest, freshest wine ever tasted. This wine did not come from the normal process of fermentation, from grapes, vines, the earth, and the sun. The Lord brought it into existence from nothing. Truly, this was evidence that he is the creator. A wise man once asked, How can a man turn water into wine? A wiser man replied, That's easy. When the water saw its creator, it simply blushed. I want to take a moment here and bring home a couple of important correlations between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Similarities and differences between Moses and Jesus. These would be correlations between the mediator of the Old Covenant and the mediator of a New Covenant. Both were mediators between God and man. Both led God's people out of bondage. Both were great prophets of God. Obviously, Moses was a mere man who was far from perfect, and Jesus was God who was perfect. Moses' first miracle was a plague, turning water into blood, which speaks of judgment. Our Lord's first miracle was a blessing, turning water into wine, which speaks of his love. Moses gave the law, which was to be kept perfectly. Jesus saved us from the law because he was perfect. Moses could never be an atoning sacrifice because of his sin. Jesus, who never sinned, hung on a cross for sinners like you and like me. Don't ultimately follow Moses, follow Jesus. Don't focus primarily on the external rituals of religion. Focus primarily on the internal work of the Holy Spirit 
to transform your heart. To say it another way, don't put new wine into old wineskins. Rather, let the new wine of the Holy Spirit fill your heart. Be transformed by the gospel of grace. If our Lord had to preach a sermon after he turned the water into wine, what do you think he might have said? For one thing, it's likely they would have told his people that the world's joy always runs out and cannot be regained. But the joy that he gives is new and ever satisfying. In the scriptures, wine is a symbol of joy, and that is also a symbol of salvation. And so I think there's a whole lot that we could benefit in reading this text just to think about. The world offers the best at the first, and then once you're hooked and things start to get worse, things begin to go sour, but Jesus continues to offer you that which is best until one day we enjoy the finest blessings in the eternal kingdom of God. What I'm saying here is that the point made at the wedding, this is my, my last point here, number five, the point made at the wedding, verse 11, after, uh, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Here's what I'm saying. The point made at this wedding is that the best is yet to come. The new covenant's better than the old covenant. Jesus' ways are better than your ways. The kingdom of God is now in your midst. And I'm telling you right now, wherever you are in your life, the best is yet to come. This is not a, a Joel Osteen message. Okay? This is in the gospel. If today you're saved and you're looking forward one day he will return for his own. One day he is coming back. It just keeps getting better. There's no such thing as the glory days of when you lived at TMU and you got to come to chapel three days a week. That was the spiritual highlight of your life. No, the, the idea of progressive sanctification is every day, every moment, as you begin to continue to take part of the word of God, it keeps getting better and better and better and better, and Jesus is just, is just uh, inaugurating the beginning of his ministry. But at the end of his ministry, in the book of Revelation, we read about his return. And so we can always think about the fact that he's coming back for us, so that no matter what you're going through in your life right now, no matter how difficult it is, we have an optimistic eschatology. Jesus is coming back. Your sanctification will culminate into glorification. All things will be made new. And so I just want to encourage you today, students, that as long as you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, as long as you meditate on the gospel and its truth and implications in your life and in your growth and in the soon coming return of Christ, you can always say with integrity and with conviction and with great optimism that Jesus is saving the best for last and that in him, the best is yet to come. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to look at this text and think about all the little different applications that we could think about here. Lord, we, we just want to be amazed this morning at the miracle of Christ. We want to be in a posture of adoring our creator. Just to think about this simple story in a way that would remind us of the inauguration of the ministry of Christ, the fulfillment of his kingdom, that he does all things well, and then at the end, we know that you're saving the best for last. We know that that is Jesus, that's Jesus today, 
that's Jesus tomorrow, that's Jesus in all eternity. That the best is tasting of salvation through the cross. The best is being washed by the blood that was spilt for sinners so that we could be saved, that we could be cared for, that we could be appreciated, that we could be taken out of this world and placed into the next. And so, God, I just pray for the students this morning, whoever's having a great day and whoever's having a rough day. God, we don't look to presidents. We don't look to veterans. We look to Christ. We don't look to our problems today. We don't look to our lack. We look to our supply. We look to Christ today. We lay our problems at your feet, Lord. And we ask that you would encourage us today to see all things new through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us. Lead us to the rock that is higher than I. Allow us to feel your presence in our life. And may we live a life of worship and appreciation and gratitude. And may we look to the future of Christ's return. And it's in his name we pray.